Welcome to another episode of Galvanized Masculinity, a podcast that focuses on forging better men by looking at the example of great leaders before us and living a life that challenges. Today, we're going to be talking to a good friend of mine that is an explorer and tour guide in the Middle East. Andrew Jones, and yes, what a last name to have as an explorer. He really needs to consider changing his name to Indiana left the comforts of the United States, working in the computer programming industry, and followed his dream of exploring the Middle East and the biblical sites there. Now, this audio was recorded on the internet that he had there, which is not always the greatest, so it may glitch a time or two, but the information that he has to share with us on the sites that he has explored and also the culture that he is learning about is really riveting and insightful. Now, at the end of the podcast, Andrew will share where you can find his pictures of the sites that he is at, on information on if you would like to go on a tour with him, but all of that will be at the end for your convenience. I'm your host, Garrett Morgan, and hey, thanks for listening. All right, everybody. I am here with my friend, Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones has been interested in the Middle East for quite some time now, to the point that he actually lives over there. And we're going to be talking about today kind of what made him want to move there, the things that he's learned in the different cultures, getting out of his comfort zone, and also just some really cool stuff that he's been able to see and and take people um, just to go and and see them as well. So um, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Pastor. I'm glad to be here and share what I've seen and um, done, and hopefully others can do the same. Awesome, brother. So be- before we get into like what you do now and the cool stuff of you know Saudi Arabia and, and Egypt and all those great places, what is your background in um, just b- b- before all this happened? You weren't, you weren't born being a biblical explorer, were you? Uh, no, but I've... Um, since early on, um, I think it was even in elementary school, I had built like a little model Noah's Ark out of paper. <laughs> and yeah. I remember doing that. And I've always had this interest in the Bible, everything related to the Bible, whether it's theology or history. Um, and, and I'm really like a logical person. So it has to make sense. And, and I have to be able to explain it. So the Bible says that, um, you know, Moses climbed Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. I believe that happened. And so um, early in life, I was always interested in the history of all uh, things related to the Bible. Sure. Um, and so, so, but my, um, uh, my focus went into uh, computer science and I became a computer programmer in California uh, only because my parents redirected me in college. They said that you can't make any money in archaeology. Sure. And do that as a serious side hobby. And they told me, you know, get, um, you know, get training or a degree in something that can you can uh, make money and pay for your um, hobby. So that's what I did. I became a computer programmer. Uh, but I would go on, um, you know, tours or on my own trips to the Middle East you know, sure. here and there. Um, and that's kind of, um, and it's kind of, it's grew over time until it became almost full time now. Awesome. So your parents said, you know, not really a whole lot of money there in biblical archaeology or, or archaeology in general. So they, they moved you to, towards getting that degree that, that could make you money. So you did that for a while, but always kind of had the side hobby of, you know, going over and seeing these sites and reading books and studying um, these, these biblical sites over in the Middle East. So what drove you to, I mean, it, it must have been difficult. The United States is a pretty comfortable place to live for most of us. What made you want to just fully decide, you know, I'm going to go over here and this is where I'm going to live most of the year. What made you want to do that? Yeah, it wasn't like a sudden decision. Um, I, um, like the, my very first trip here, I was so nervous. Um, I was in college. It was 1997. I went out okay. to Turkey and I went to Eastern Turkey where um, we were looking at what um, some believe is, is the buried remains of Noah's Ark. 
Okay. Um, this is the Ron, the Ron Wyatt Durepinar site, the boat formation out there. Mm-hmm. And so I was um, in my, I think, let's see, that was 97. So I was 20 or 21 years old at that time. And, and I went over there and I was scared I was by myself. I met a friend at the Istanbul airport um, the, the, the next day, but my first like evening here in Istanbul, I was all by myself and I went exploring into the city yeah, and I had the, the the experience I think everyone now who's been here had, where someone tries to pull you into their carpet shop and sell you a Turkish rug. Oh boy! But um, <laughs> I was all by myself, and um, at that time the internet was kind of new, so everything was kind of like you wanted to read about a country, you bought like Lonely Planet guidebooks or oh yeah, you know yeah. there was Rick, there's Rick Steve on PBS and things like that, but uh, there's not like all these forums and um, there was no Google Maps and things to do all this research on your own, and so I was uh, I heard um, things from Ron Wyatt and others who've had um, bad experiences over here and good experiences, but always the bad ones you know they stick out, and mm-hmm. so when I got here I was kind of paranoid. And uh, just being uh, in my early 20s, I thought that um, in some of the instances where I met the locals, I thought I was going to die or something. Sure. <laughs> um, and so like one guy, he brought me to his carpet shop and I had read in a guidebook, they said like um, that someone had an experience on a train trip across Turkey and they said their tea was spiked, the chai that they serve everywhere. Oh, boy. And they woke up and everything was stolen, including the clothes on them. And wow! So, wow! Um, and so I kept on thinking. So I was I'm at this chai, uh, this Turkish um, carpet shop, mm-hmm. and um, I'm being served uh, chai tea, which is oh, customary no. everywhere you go. But but I'm thinking if I take a sip of this tea, I'm gonna wake up all naked in the <laughs> some back alley of Istanbul <laughs> yeah, yeah. with all everything gone, and uh, I didn't even buy a rug. <laughs> They're trying to sell me a rug, and so. Um, I'm, in, I'm in this shop and this guy's bringing out all these rugs, but I'm just like this nice guy. It's hard for me to say no. And mm-hmm. so he keeps piling up these rugs in the showroom. Like no one's there but me and him. Yeah. And finally, and then he brings out the tea and tries to, and wondering why I'm not drinking the tea. And I finally decide I'm going to just run out of here. So I told oh. him, can you bring me one more rug? And so like, I don't know about these other ones. So he goes back into the uh, storage area to get a rug out for me. And I put that tea down and I just like booked it out and ran down the stairs. <laughs> the guy probably thought, what's wrong? Like the, uh, the, the, uh, the, um, the rapture happened or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like it's where did gone. this guy go? <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, he's probably laughing. Like this guy is crazy. And looking back, I'm just laughing at it. Cause you know, he was just being nice and sure. I should have said no right away about like, I don't have the money or room for a big Turkish rug in my backpack. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, that time I was paranoid and so that was my first experience in Turkey <laughs> that first <Wow>. night <laughs> so that, that kind of leads me to my next question though you know you spend a lot of time in Turkey and um let me pronounce this right because I pronounced it wrongly it's it's Saudi Arabia right yeah they, they uh for the Arabic it's Saudi they, they, Saudi we just say Saudi <laughs> Saudi okay. yeah Saudi All right. Arabia yes. so you spent a time a lot of time there um at yes. what you believe is the is the biblical Mount Sinai location we'll talk about that but you know you yeah. the Americans have a really often negative view of you know those that live in the Middle East or even Muslims in general Islamic um people and, you know, mm-hmm. you've experienced the positives of that and some negatives, but what do you think, how do they look upon Americans over there? I'm sure it, it varies by, you know, by, by, by different cities or, or different country, but how do they view us? Well, uh, on my very first trip, like to uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, that was April, 2016. And at that time, it was still a closed country. We went in on a business visa. Okay. And so there's no tourism at that time. And of course, this was, you know, obviously after 9-11 and everyone, um, would, like when I would tell my friends or family uh, for this trip, I kept it, you know, a very close circle of people who knew, but sure. I, they were like, oh, are you sure? You know, I did all this research, um, but I was with a group. And we had a good guide um, who had been there, who spoke Arabic and who'd been there many times. And he actually did um, missionary work um, with uh, like dialoguing between um, uh, Christians and uh, Muslims. Okay. So he knew the, he knew the culture and the religion. And so I felt comfortable with that. But when I got there, what really blew my mind was how 
positive and how friendly and hospitable mm -hmm. these people were. When they found out we were Americans, like seemed like everyone in Saudi Arabia had Snapchat. And you know, this was uh, four years ago. Um, sure. And so I don't know what, what's the latest thing now there, but back then they all wanted to get their smartphones out. Everyone had an Android phone or an iPhone and they wanted to turn on Snapchat and for us to say hello to all their friends. Uh, who knows who's on their network there and who was wow. their friend, but they all knew that they just met an American. And um, so that was uh -huh. one thing that was just how friendly they were. Then the next thing, and especially for Saudi Arabia, that blew my mind was how people would invite you. You'd be out in the middle of the desert, just driving along. And so I've been there 20 times so far. Wow. Okay. And I've driven there by myself and with groups and with a couple of friends. But, you know, I've been a 4 a 4 We go out in the desert um, investigating the exodus from Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And so you're out in the desert and you run across these Bedouins usually with some camels or goats. And the first thing they want to do, they, they, they find that you're American. They want to invite you to their house or tent to have remember this. coffee, Arabic, yeah. Arabic coffee. They just want to bring you home. And um, I was with um, two, uh, an Adventist doctor and his wife. And then my photographer friend and I, this was in, uh, um, this story was in 2017. And so we were just driving around near Mount Sinai there. And um, we came across this herd of goats. And so we started taking photographs. Everyone likes to see, you know, animals in the wild kind of. Yeah, yeah. And so we started taking photographs. And right away, um, this guy drives up an older man and, he, and his teenage sons in a pickup, a beat up truck. They come over and they want to know what we're doing. And at first, we're all scared. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, we're in his area. And like, what? you know, it's like someone, like if you had a foreigner crossing your land and they were taking pictures of your animals, you'd be like, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in America, for example. Right. Well, uh, they invite, the guy invited us for coffee to his house. This was actually a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And so we get there and the guy's, uh, my friend's wife, she had to go to the woman's area uh, tent. Yep. And so she said goodbye to us. And then we went to the men's tent. Wow. And so we're with his sons uh, who ranged from like a uh, 10 year old to up to like, I think 18. And then it was me and the doctor friend and then my photographer and then this guy. And so it started with coffee and then mm -hmm. it, we had tea. And then after that, they brought out this whole platter of, um, the, the, he fed us uh, lunch. Wow. Uh, platter of goat in the middle, like a communal style. So a huge big plate in the middle of the room with goat and rice. And, wow. um, and so you're sitting there. And so I know everyone in my group is vegetarian. Okay. It's just funny because, you know, they're very, they're being very hospitable. Yeah. And so that day I was not vegetarian. Right. And, but it was just amazing. So. Yeah, exactly. And I, it was nothing wrong with for me to um, eat it. And I, yeah. I was just, you know, wanted to be part of their uh, hospitality and tradition, not rude. <laughs> yeah. And um, just, but it was amazing to see how they reacted to a foreigner. And I was just thinking, you know, would I do that in America if I came mm. across uh, like walking down the street in California and I came across a foreigner who just was wandering around like a tourist yeah. And when I just invite them in, I can know who they are and say, Hey, come to my house. I'll feed you dinner. You know, then, then go ahead and make something. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just, and it brought back the story of like how Abraham, you know, this is the Middle Eastern hospitality in this region, how Abraham mm -hmm. did the same thing when he saw, um, I think it was Christ and the angels yeah. right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, he had his, um, uh, his servants and his wife cook up a meal and he served them food outside of his tent. Um, and these were complete strangers you know, at first to him. And so, I, you know, you see that still today. And so that was, and I have experienced that over and over. Just, that's just one story of where, how, um, you know, how hospitable they are. And you know, just like in any country, there are people who have negative opinions of another culture or another uh, nationality. And so I'm quite sure, you know, every, every country has it. There are people who might hate Americans. Um, so thankfully, I have not met them. <laughs> that's um, incredible. Yeah, so it's you no, know, that's just an example. And the same with that way here in Turkey, you have people who always want to invite you in um, to have chai, uh, the Turkish tea, and, and just talk to you in their broken English if they can. Or we use, hmm. I use Google Translate a lot yeah. um, just to communicate. And um, just they want to know who, like, usually they ask about Trump, <laughs> you know, politics. Oh, yeah. oh, or yeah. they ask, some, sometimes they ask about religion, but a lot of times this is about, like, where are you from? You say California, they immediately think Hollywood, so they, they, they like that. 
Um, yeah. Or then when they um, then they ask about Trump or who who did now this year's an election, so it's like who did you vote for? Oh boy! Um, and one time I was traveling, yeah, and I learned because I've learned there's a, even here there's a um, an opinion. Obviously, everyone has an opinion, sure. whether it's good or bad, about a politician. And so what I've learned to say is that um, I'm not into politics, and and so yeah, I kind of leave it like that. It's probably wise. Yeah, because I actually, um, I found out like I was in Italy once. We got stopped by the police way out in the mountains sleeping. And some neighbor reported a, a vehicle driving in the mountains. And they woke us up like three in the morning, my friend and I. Oh, and, the, and the cops, when they, when they saw our passport, first thing they asked was, um, are, and this was in um, 2016. So who was the president? In 16? Um, I think it was, the, I think it was the election. This was the summer of 16. Okay, okay. Yeah, that was the election year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was Hillary versus Trump. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. And so they asked us, the guy asked me, the police officer, and, um, and all I, and I, and I said neither because I didn't know what, what he would say. And he was actually, um, I think it was funny because this guy was actually, uh, well, he was for Hillary, I think. Yeah. Italian police officer. But, um, because he said it and I was like wow this even has an opinion about it all you know Incredible. so I've just learned that over here and overseas you don't know their background or their sure. opinion so I just stay away from those type of topics unless I really know them well then I can you know talk about what I view well that makes any, sense you know, something like that because like man I, I remember going to Saudi with you and and just getting you know dropped off in the Middle East and you know everything that I had known before then was you know kind of what you see on CNN or Fox News you know whenever you see you know, the Middle East brought up is usually bad news or conflict or, or, or something like that. And I, I remember, I don't, I, I'm sure you remember this, like we were going out on a tour in, in, in just in the middle of nowhere, going over through some of these archaeological sites. And like one of the princes of Saudi Arabia just wanted to come with us. And he just followed us around for a few hours just to, just to kind of be with Americans and show us hospitality. And I mean, he was on our he was on our little shortwave radios with us. I mean, it was really cool to see this this government official take time out of his week, significant time, just to to hang with these Americans. Yeah, I remember him. I still keep in contact with that. Are you talking about the guy in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Who went to the split rock with us and um yeah. I still keep in contact with him. Um, and he's an official for that Neom project that Saudi's building there, uh, which is kind of like a, a new Dubai 2.0 um, for Northwest Arabia, which covers um, the land of Midian. And wow. so he's one of their, his, um, I don't know what his official title is. He's on their website. There's an interview. If you go to neom.com, you'll see, and scroll down the page, you'll see him there. His name is, um, well, I won't say his name, but he's on there. And so it's just, you know, he's a high up official, but he took the time to go with us answer questions, talk to us. Um, and so it was really kind of him to do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's just incredible. So kind of shifting gears, you know, you talked about kind of the, the culture shock of going over there and, and how they view us and just what a delight it usually is when you go over there to the Middle East. Um, you know, I spent the majority of my time there in Saudi Arabia and that just really left an impact on me, you know, the, 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 the communal society, as opposed to like our individualist American society is just such an interesting contrast, but let's get down to what you're really passionate about. Um, you know, there's two different sites. Um, well, probably more than that now, but two different sites that talk about, you know, the biblical Mount Sinai and you differ a little bit from the usually accepted version of where that is. So can you kind of give us a history on the, the, like the one that people accept usually as the Mount Sinai, and then kind of talk about the one that you believe is in, in Saudi Arabia? Correct. Yeah. So when I first heard about all this, you know, I was a teenager, early teen, uh, and two, uh, what was that? 1991. I was in middle school and, um, and this guy came to Sacramento, his name was Ron Wyatt, and it was this Thursday night. And so my father said, hey, this man is going to give a, a one-night lecture at a nearby Adventist church. And he um, is going to talk about biblical archaeology, and I wanted to go, but it was a school night and I had homework. So my dad said he would go for me and come back and give me the report. And so when he came back, my dad said, hey, this guy said he found Mount Sinai and the Red Sea Crossing. And so I got really interested Sure. Uh, about the guy's book and I, and I ended up calling him and speaking to him and his wife 
um, many, many times and finally invited him out um, to a local church there twice um, in 95 and 1996. And then he uh, sadly passed away in 1999, but I always wanted to go check the site out myself. And there have been others who've been out there. Um, there was a book written in 1988 about this mountain by um, two explorers who heard about it from Ron. And they went out there and they saw the same things and they actually got a book with photos in it. And so I, I went to the library and I got, uh, his, na his name was Larry Williams. He went out there with Bob Cornuke. And um, so Larry wrote a book and so I got that book um, and I read everything I could. And you know I was always interested in checking out the sites. And finally in 2016, I was able to go for the first time to Saudi Arabia to physically see it myself and start exploring. Um, and then that same year I went to the traditional, in fact, one week I climbed this mountain in Saudi Arabia. And then a week later, I climbed the traditional mountain in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Hmm. And so I was able to see both mountains up close, um, but correct. So there are actually probably over a half a dozen, uh, I'm sorry, at least a dozen or so Mount Sinai locations in the Middle East. Uh, and the reason the reason is is that because um, you know since these events happened 3,500 years ago, um, uh, people have lost track yeah. of where the uh, locations were, um, especially since the, uh, there's never been a continual like pilgrimage to the sites. Unlike like in Jerusalem, we know where the Temple Mount is. We know where the city of Jerusalem is because yeah. people have always lived there, and so we haven't lost that site. But uh, Mount Sinai has been lost and then rediscovered. Um, uh, and so people have claimed they've found the site even back in the Middle Ages. Um, Constantine's mother-in-law, she thought she had a vision and, and had found the location in the southern um, Sinai Peninsula. So this is a, a rocky mountainous region. And so she um, said, this is the site. And so they built a monastery there. Um, they started pilgrimages there. and. Uh, that's the, the site that everyone kind of just goes to if you want to get a selfie at Mount Sinai. It's easy Whoa. to get there. You know, so, it's, so you have this old monastery. And in this monastery, you have everything right near you. You don't have to travel around. Um, you know, it's just amazing. It's like a miracle. So inside the courtyard, one end of the courtyard, you have the so-called burning bush. So they have this big sprouting tree. We don't know how old it is but it's still alive and it's, and they say, uh, you know, this is the burning bush. And then on the other side of the courtyard, you have this well and have a sign there saying, this is where Moses met the, the um, daughters of Jethro. Hmm. So this is very easy to go there. You can you know, get a little hotel nearby. You can walk to both of those, um, where those supposedly where those events happened in the one little courtyard of this monastery. So, 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 so let me get this straight. Convenient. Um, but uh, and this is, yeah. 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 So the, the, the main reason that, that this this mountain is considered Sinai is because you said Constantine's wife had a vision that this was it. And then they just built a monastery there. And that's just how it's always been. His mother-in-law. Yes. So she kind of went around and found a lot of the traditional sites like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in um, uh, Jerusalem, where they, uh, the traditional site where Jesus was crucified and buried. Um, and I'm sure there was more than that, but th those are the two famous ones, Mount Sinai and um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, so, you know, you could say she was the world's greatest archeologist back then, because she was able to find everything she was looking for. Um, and so uh, th from then on people, obviously, because they're like, you know, as I mentioned, there are more than a dozen of these Mount Sinai locations people realize that her, this traditional site that she had picked has issues. And so they've looked other, looked in other locations in the Sinai Peninsula, north, south, east, the west, and even in Southern Israel, um, in Southern Jordan, and the you know, land of Edom, and all the way into Northwest Saudi Arabia, where um, I'm interested in, um, and so the land of Midian. And so the, people have looked in all these other locations because there are problems with the traditional site. Hmm. Wow. So that's, that's, it's shocking to me that that's just always been accepted and it hasn't really necessarily been, been proven. And that's where people just kind of flock and go just because that's what their history book usually tells them. And, it, and I'm a huge fan of history, but, you know, usually we try and back up those archaeological sites and things by, by fact. 
So the one that, that you believe is in, you know, this land of Edom in Saudi Arabia, you, you believe that this is, this fits the description of, of the Exodus Mount Sinai better. What are the characteristics that you're looking for when you're looking for Mount Sinai, biblically speaking? Yeah, so um, we're talking actually uh, land of Midian. Um, so this would be where Jethro lived. And so from the biblical standpoint, here's what we know, is that the first time that Mount Sinai is mentioned, this mountain of God, it's called Mount Horeb, it's called just Horeb. Um, other times it's called the mountain of God. Um, and so the first time this mountain is mentioned is when Moses goes there um, with Jethro's sheep and he sees the burning bush. And that's when God says, you know, gives him his um, commission to go bring the Israelites back to this mountain. Yeah. Um, and so from just that one story alone, that should give you a hint as to the location. Here we have Moses living for 40 years. You remember, he's in exile. He had killed or he saw, um, you know, the, this Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And so he killed the guy and then he gets outed. So he flees from Pharaoh. And so we know everyone agrees that he fled to the land of Midian and the historical archeological record, um, no one disputes that Midian is in Northwest Saudi Arabia. So this is the Eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is one of the branches of the Red Sea. And so there is absolutely zero archeological evidence that, this, um, that the Midianites uh, were in Southern uh, Sinai Peninsula by the traditional Mount Sinai. So we know Moses flees to this Northwest Saudi Arabia area and the archeological evidence there shows the Midianites had um, settlements around a lot of the major o oasis there. Um, we find their pottery there, ancient geographers place um, their towns in that area all the way up um, to the Greek geographers. So this is even right before Christ. Um, and so you, we have this like real archeological data, not just hearsay that Midian is in Northwest Arabia. So then the question is, is Mount Sinai there? Uh, and so the first clue is that Moses is with Jethro's sheep. Um, what's he doing with them? Well, if you look at what the Bedouins do uh, even today, uh, depending on the seasons, whether it's hot or cold, um, they bring the, they they migrate around the area with their sheep. They go up to higher elevations or they go lower, depending on the weather and the seasons you know, for the sheep to graze. And so that's most likely what Moses was doing. Uh, now the tradition that Jethro lived in the uh, modern um, Saudi town of Al Bad goes way back. Um, you have it in Islamic literature, um, but you also have it in the Greek. Um, uh, literature about this town they would they would call um, uh, Midian hmm. and so today that town is called El Bad um, and so that's a little it's, it's, have you been there it's a small little town where they have these caves that they call the tombs of Jethro they're actually uh, Nabataean tombs from the time of Christ but you have that tradition applying Jethro's name all through that area that go away that goes way back and in the middle of this town you have the traditional well of Moses um, that they've fenced off um, where they say that um, Moses met Jethro's daughters um, and so anyways you but we know that the Midianites were there because of the archaeological um, it's not just Islamic tradition, but we have the archaeological um, evidence that the Midianites, like El Bad was one of their main center uh, of um, called their civilization, whatever their country. And so um, from that area, Moses was, you know, he was in this area living with Jethro and taking care of the sheep. And he decides to take the sheep out from wherever Jethro's tent was set up. And he um, comes across the burning bush at Mount Sinai. Mm, interesting. Um, the burning bush was on the mountain. Yeah. So if you look at a map, I know this is an audio um, podcast, but if someone were to look at a map of this area and you put your finger, most biblical um, maps shows like the traditional Mount Sinai site and the Southern Sinai Peninsula. If you put your finger there and then if you look like basically go directly east, you, um, just right across the Gulf of Aqaba, um, right around that area is uh, the town of El Bad. And this mountain range, the Jebel Allah's mountain range, and um, if if you go to where Al Bad is located, and you realize, you know, Jethro lived somewhere in that area of Midian, then you realize if you look at this map, how far Moses would have to go with the sheep to get it to get him 
from Jethro's home all the way around the Gulf of Aqaba because he didn't split the Red Sea for the sheep. Yeah, so he had to go all the yeah, way no. from um, that. <laughs> he had to go all the way up around the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is, you know, modern Jordan and Israel up there, and all the way back down the western side of the Gulf to this traditional Mount Sinai to see the burning bush. That's a huge migration. Yeah, that doesn't effort, work. Uh, with the sheep and they never did such a thing. And why would he bring the sheep all the way down to this rocky, barren, uh, most, you know, most of that area has no water um, area of Southern Sinai Peninsula to the traditional Mount Sinai when uh, he most likely did exactly what the Bedouins do today with their sheep when they go from their lower coastal plains higher up into the mountains based on the time of year when they're following where the, um, the grass or the bushes are growing to feed their sheep. And so then you realize, wow, nearby, near, right near Jethro's home was Mount Sinai. He didn't take them. He didn't take the sheep on a pilgrimage. He was just doing his, uh, what the, the Bedouins do every year. And then you read in the book, uh, one of the books of uh, Josephus. Now, he was a historian who lived just around the time of Christ, um, a little after Christ was crucified. Yeah. Um, he wrote his histories of the Jews um, and other books. Um, and so in there, he mentions that near... Um, this town of Midian um, from, you know, this is 2000 years ago. So his understanding of it was that Mount Sinai at that point in time, they believe Mount Sinai was near Midian hmm. and right near this town of Elbad, which the Greek geographers also call Midian. So you're in the land of Midian and they're calling the central town, they're naming it Midian too. They said near there, Josephus said was the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Hmm. And when you, when you're in Elbad, you're looking to the east, you see this huge mountain range and the tallest mountain in that area, Jebel Laz, and all their sister peaks you know, going um, along this range. And when you talk to the locals, even today, they tell you, this is the mountain of Moses. This is Jebel Musa, in, wow. say in Arabic. And, and so even today, you have this tradition among many of the locals that the events of the Exodus happened in Northwest Saudi Arabia. And wow. so from the biblical standpoint, the, the first major clue, back to your original question about the biblical clues of, you know, what you, you find at Mount Sinai. First thing is Jethro um, and the sheep of Jethro that Moses are taking care of, he leads them to Mount Sinai. So Sinai cannot be too far from the home of Jethro. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first uh, clue. Uh, the, ne the next thing is the Israelites um, wandering. Um, and so in the biblical account, they, they give the different stages of the Exodus, all their different campsites. Um, Numbers chapter 33 has this, and you find that there's a list of all the campgrounds where the Israelites camped at. And in the book of Exodus, um, Moses mentions uh, the majority of the, um, the major ones where you know, events happened, um, while the book of Numbers uh, chapter 33, it lists all the minor ones also. But when you look at the time frame, we know they left on the, the morning after Passover from mm -hmm. the land of Goshen, Mm -hmm. which is up in the Nile Delta. Right. And then you read in Exodus chapter 19, verses one and two, that they arrived at Mount Sinai in the third month. Hmm. That gives you a time frame of how long it took. So Passover is the, uh, uh, the fifth, I think that would be the 15th day of the first month. Yep. Up into the either, it depends how you translate um, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses one and two. But um, some people say that means uh, the very first day of the third month, when it says the first, uh, the self-same day that they arrived at Mount Sinai. Um, other people say that means the, uh, the same day they left from the first month. So that would be the 15th day of the third month. So either way, you have between 45 days and up to um, 60 days. Um, you know, wow. One and a half months to two months journey. Hmm. Now, you, the, the strange thing is you have these scholars who are looking for Mount Sinai and even some who have, you know, they have PhDs and, and they've done all their uh, university training, and they'll tell you that Mount Sinai is a three days journey from the land of Goshen. So they, and they say, well, you know, a day's journey could be up to 15 miles. So Mount Sinai is 45 miles away. And so, but they totally ignore that when you, when you get down to the nitty gritty, when Moses is writing about the Exodus, he tells that they had all these Exodus camping stops and they yeah. went, they were traveling for 45 to 60 days. And mm. so there's, unless they're walking like an inch a day, you know, there's right. no way that uh, you can put Mount Sinai that close to the land of Egypt. 
if it's uh, up to 60, you know, 45 to 60 days away journey, mm -hmm. that places Mount Sinai further away. Um, so that's another clue is that this, the Exodus route um, and the distance and the time frame given points to Mount Sinai being farther away from Egypt than um, the, some of these traditional locations. Hmm. Man, that that's incredible. And you know, so I, uh, and then you um, then you have yeah. No, like I I just remember going through that that area and just walking around. You know, like the palm trees and the oasis there, and you know, the, the, just the Red Sea and knowing that there were remains of, you know, Egyptian chariots there and getting to Mount Sinai itself and, you know, reading the biblical, you know, description of the, the biblical heroes that had been there, you know, Moses and Elijah and, and all these men. Um, it just really puts you in a place of, I guess, mm -hmm. I don't really know how to describe it, but you're just kind of in awe of that this could be it. Yeah, I think um, on my first trip there, first it was just kind of pinching yourself, like I've read about it, seen photos, you know, older photos. This was before we had the drone videos, but um, that first trip in 2016, and you realize, and I was just walking through there, and you realize the events that happened. I think the biggest thing that stood out is that this is where God spoke the law. Hmm. Um, and so, and, and as an Adventist, um, and I read like the writings of Ellen White, um, and she talks about how all of heaven came down, even God the Father was there, and all the angels yeah. was at Mount Sinai. And so you, you have this, um, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this, this multitude of angels surrounding Jesus as he gave, as he gave the law and then even God the father there, uh, that must be, have been a, an amazing sight. And you can understand why the Israelites were trembling and so scared. It, Moses, he was scared too, according mm -hmm. to the book of Hebrews. And so you, and you, you see this, um, or you imagine this picture of like this, the mountain on, on fire and the smoke going up into the very heavens and then the earthquake sound and then the voice of God like a, tr uh, like a thunder and trumpets uh, and the lightning and then the dark cloud covering the mountain. You know, all of that um, makes you um, think, uh, you know, like, wow, I, why am I, why did I get to go here? You know, it's, it's, I'm not special. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then you think about the millions of Israelites who were there and they saw what, um, you know, what only we can imagine in, in Hollywood or in our minds, but what, how it happened. Uh, it must've been an awesome sight. Um, so, Absolutely. Uh, and I loved, I loved taking people there and, and seeing their reaction for the first time. Like, wow, this is where it happened. And you and those who can climb to the summit or go to the cave that we, you know, we call the cave of Elijah, you know, because it was a cave that Elijah fled to in first Kings chapter 19. Um, and so I mentioned that Mount Horeb, uh, which is another name for Sinai, um, had a cave on it. And so this mountain has that. Um, mm. So yeah, back to that original thing you're talking about, like what's in the Bible, you know, we have this idea that there's a, a cave on the mountain, that there was a brook, a water that came down, there's the gigantic plain in front where all the Israelites and their cattle and the mixed multitude could, um, you know, could be at. And so, and then somewhere near there, there was a golden calf incident where they built the golden calf and, and also where Moses built his own altar. And so you have all these things um, happening at this mountain and uh, this is some of the things we find uh, today um, at the, the site we're looking at in Saudi Arabia. And that's why um, when you're there, the story just comes alive. You just, you're remembering the Bible verses or for me, it's like, I grew up on the movie, 10 commandments. Yeah. And so you, you remember Charlton Heston and, and him there. Um, and so it's just kind of like, um, I don't know, it's just a feeling of awe and very humbling um, to think about uh, what happened there and, and how, even today, people still want to see this. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, you know, I just think Elijah in the cave, because I, I hiked to Elijah's cave, and um, I was up there when I made it, because it's, it's quite a little hike to get up there, and uh, you, you recognize, mm -hmm. wow, this is, this is, this is not easy. This is, this is hard stuff to, to get up here, and, you know, just reading the story of Elijah there in the cave, and overlooking that plain, and I think a, a friend of ours on our trip, when I went with you, you know, he was there by the brook and, and it was so cold up there that the brook had like, it was, there was a layer of ice across it. He was like, 
skipping stones across the ice on the brook up there. And you know, it just checks off all the boxes that you would that you would want in a Mount Sinai, you know, location and the aspects. And then one thing that we didn't mention, and I want to talk about this too, is just the petroglyphs that are that are everywhere around the mountain, depicting you know, you know, the golden the, the calves worshiping the golden calves, and uh, it, that it's just incredible to see those ancient you know thousands year old petroglyphs that are still there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's one of the, um, uh, you could say, uh, key um, pieces of evidence um, for this location are the petroglyphs, um, showing that people throughout you know, different time periods were there. Um, but what's really interesting, obviously, is that these aren't just petroglyphs of any animal, like a camel or a goat or something, but you no, know, we have petroglyphs of cows. And we have people raising their hands um, to these cows. And these cows, um, these petroglyphs are ha- the similar style, are, are um, carved in the similar style to the Egyptian cow goddess mm-hmm. um, Hathor and the cow god Apis, the, the bull god. And um, you see the similar style with the horns. Um, and you know, I was in ancient Egypt, I was, I was in modern Egypt at one of the ancient uh, temple sites. And they showed us some of the guides like, hey, here is the um, uh, um, Hathor goddess. And you look and you see the cow, the horns, the very similar shape to what you what I saw over in um, uh, these rocks in front of Mount Sinai at the base there. Um, and so it's uh, interesting. I was uh, talking to a local Bedouin there. And I, I don't know if they... Um, it's like a tradition that got passed down to them or they just heard it because everyone's been talking about it. You know, it's hard to say with some of these people there because you know, now it's like a lot of tourists are going there. But this guy, he's like, he told us, um, I don't, it wasn't our first trip, but it was later on. He said, let me take you to the baby uh, uh, camel site, the baby golden camel site. I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, oh, you mean the golden calf, which is a baby cow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he had, by then he had this story of it was a baby camel. <laughs> and so <laughs> said, okay, yeah, sure. I know what you're, we're, what you're talking about now. And he I was like, I know where the site is, but I let him take me to it just to make him feel better. <laughs> yeah. But, well, uh, but yeah, when you're there, you see all this. And, and again, that is one of the key things are these uh, petroglyphs out there. So talking about the petroglyphs and kind of aside from Mount Sinai, I think one of the first days my group was with you, you took us out and man, it was in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't necessarily near Mount Sinai at all, but I mean, just the middle of nowhere. And you took us on like, like this, this wadi just, just going through the, the desert here of Saudi Arabia. And we, I think we got like two or three flat tires and we were looking for um, a petroglyph of, of a menorah just out in the middle of Saudi Arabia, miles away from where, you know, modern historians would say, um, you know, Israelites would have ever been. And it took us a while to find it. And, you know, we have pictures of the, of the menorah that somebody found, you know, a few years back. And then the way that we found it was a, was a little bit different and, and disappointing. You, you want to fill our listeners in on, you know, the, the significance behind that? Yeah. Um, so again, so this is audio. If someone wants to look this up, they can just type in Google on uh, Dr. Kim. That's K-I-M. He was the Korean doctor who was uh, one of the physicians to the governor of Mecca. So that's one of the most important provinces and cities in um, Saudi Arabia. And um, he had um, royal permission to travel across Arabia, especially these areas, back uh, 20 years ago. And so he became interested. He had heard about Ron Wyatt's um, um, theory that Mount Sinai was out there. And so he went out and decided to explore on his own with his family. And um, on one of those explorations, uh, his uh, new Bedouin friends had took him to this one valley, which... Um, we went down ourselves uh, last January, um, and in this valley, they found this menorah, a petroglyph carved on the side of a boulder with other petroglyphs, and um, he was excited. He didn't show it the Bedouin hosts at that time, but he had ta- he took some photographs, and so you look on Google, Dr. Kim menorah, you'll see these photographs before it was sadly destroyed. Now, we don't know who destroyed it, but we do know that whoever destroyed it um, wasn't just destroying the rock um, or all the petroglyphs. They 
we knew specifically uh, what was being said about this and this uh, um, whether it was made by the Israelites during the time of the Exodus or people later, uh, you know, we don't know. But at the same time, uh, whoever did this, they, they damaged it because of this association with uh, the, this biblical history. Hmm. And so today, when you go there, only that one petroglyph is carved out. They defaced it and uh, took out that chunk of rock. Um, everything else around it is left untouched. So, um, you know, it's sad. You have to be very careful and um, probably in any part of the world where if you find something, you don't want um, people who uh, might not agree with your understanding of the object or whatever you find to know that you're interested in it because then hmm. they could chisel it out and try to sell it or just destroy it because they don't agree with your understanding of it. And so that's what we, uh, we were the basically the first group since this doctor, you know, so he found it, I want to say it was 2006. Um, I'm trying to remember the timestamp on his photographs that's on the internet. But um, so he gave us, he didn't have a GPS on that trip. You know, there was GPS back then, but he didn't have one and his, he didn't have a smartphone back then that, you know, embedded the GPS. So we had his photographs, but he gave me a general location and, and he said, okay, go check it out somewhere near this spot. And so, as you remember, we drove um, down, it took a while to get down to that area from our main um, hotel in Tabuk. And then when we got there, we had to pinpoint the exact rock in a rocky, barren valley yeah. that had a small little petroglyph on it. And I remember, you know, the group was split, there was division and people not wanting to do this or, or just, you know, it was just mm -hmm. taking a long time. We were all getting frustrated. And I remember I was with uh, your group leader um, and uh, Steve, uh, and he jumped in my car and we had one photograph that the, Dr. Kim had given me where it showed the mountains um, around it, like from across, like if you're standing at the boulder with the menorah, mm -hmm. he sent me a photograph that showed the mountains on the other side of the valley. And so we were just slowly, this is like towards the end of the day, about to give up. We said a quick prayer and we're just driving slowly down the road. And he, and as I'm driving, he's looking at my phone, trying to pinpoint exactly where the peaks um, line up to the photograph. And finally we, we stopped and like, it had to be in this area. And um, at the same time, I think one of the younger kids and the other um, um, the group, uh, the car, he had suggested like, hey, it can't be this far down the valley if we were originally looking. And so he was like, let's go back the way we came. And so we all, everyone started walking towards that way. And we got to the spot where Steve's like, hey, this has to be the spot. We get out and almost right away, like we were walking and we run to this one boulder. It was right beside the road. Like we had passed mm -hmm. it. And we might have even taken photographs of it without realizing that the menorah was on it chiseled out. But anyways, we get out and we find it. Um, and yeah, it's just amazing. Um, it, the shape is still kind of there because, you know, they chiseled exactly only the menorah petroglyph. So you have this chiseled out menorah shape um, hmm. on this boulder. Um, and so and we're like the first group to see it since um, 2006. And obviously someone um, since then, um, when it was discovered, realized um, that this was the boulder that Dr. Kim had taken the photograph that everyone on the internet was excited about. And so they uh, went there and chiseled it out. But um, still, uh, there, we found a lot of uh, inscriptions there, uh, not just petroglyphs, but probably Thamudic writing, which is a form of uh, a writing, uh, a group of uh, writing back in that, uh, in that, in that area of, of uh, Saudi Arabia that they haven't all interpreted yet or identified the dates yet. And so that valley is full of them. In fact, I would, mm -hmm. I'd like to go back and just explore more um, and just see what else can be found in that area. But, uh, yeah. This is an example of, uh, uh, now that wasn't on the regular tour, but that's an example of just going out there <laughs> and um, having a fun day of exploring and um, you know, rediscovering something that someone had found that has you know, a possible association with the Exodus. Yeah, man. I mean, just, just incredible stuff. And, you know, kind of talking about a, a moment ago about how, you know, the locals are so friendly and, and everything and how they invite you over and just the blessing that that is. That being said, you know, the predominant, um, the predominant people over there tend to be, you know, Muslim Islamic people. Um, and, you know, the Bible, Christianity, uh, some of it is the same at the beginning, you know, they the agree with some of the Bible uh, and, until it reaches a certain point. Um, do, are they defensive on finding Christian artifacts 
in their nation because it might it might disprove what they believe? Do you find that at all? Or are they pretty open to just kind of letting people come and see it? Uh, it depends. And so that you have also a couple of views on this. Uh, one, you do have this view that uh, they don't, uh, they're totally against idolatry, which is good. Um, and so they have a view of Christianity that uh, the, you know, the major denominations um, in Christianity do worship icons or have statues that they kiss and bow to. Fair enough. And so when the outsiders see that, they, they, they think that uh, Christians in general are, when they do these pilgrimages to different holy sites in the Holy Land, they're worshiping um, um, you know, physical items. And, they're, and, and they're in, in Islam, that's against um, the religion. And I agree with that part. And so when they see something that could possibly be turned into a pilgrimage site, um, they do feel like they need to uh, protect it or not show anyone or keep it hidden or destroy it. So they don't just, in, hey, let's preserve it because of its historical um, value. Mm. Um, more, uh, so the less interest in that and more interest into, hey, this is against our religion to worship it or it could possibly be worshiped. So we don't want that to happen in our country. So let's um, destroy it. Um, but then you also have an other, another viewpoint. That I, a local told me this one. And he said in that area of Saudi Arabia, you do have some of the Bedouins who think that anything with a carving on it, um, that, there, that means that there's gold in that rock, like there's treasure nearby. And so they will um, chip away at the rock or destroy parts of the carvings or the petroglyphs, trying to find the gold behind it. Oh. And so um, a lot of treasure hunting or, or ideas of treasure in that area of Saudi Arabia. And so that, that's just what a local told me. And I asked him about some of the, like, why we see damage to some of these petroglyphs. And he said, well, you will find this because he said in other parts of Arabia, you don't see that. Um, Interesting. That type of damage. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. Um, but in regards to the stories, like the Exodus story, Moses is a prophet, um, a, a very holy prophet to them. Um, Abraham is, of course. Um, and so even Jesus is a prophet. So you do right. have in the religion, um, the, the views that you know they're worshiping, uh, that they believe in the same prophets that the, the Jews and the Christians believe in. But of course, to them, Muhammad was the final, the greatest prophet. And, um, and so they take elements of the, uh, of, I'm, not, I'm no expert on Islam, but from what I know, they take um, elements from Christianity, from the local tribal traditions, from the Jews, and, you know, and that's how, um, and what they believe today, they believe that this is what you know, God, God's uh, revelation to Muhammad. Um, so, uh, but they don't, add, so they don't uh, disagree with that Moses, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, hey, Moses was here, Moses was there, you know, so they'll tell you, they're excitedly show you Mount Sinai or um, like once, one time I was at those caves in Albada and these caves where they call the you know, tombs of Jethro and the guy, after we were walking out, we met this Saudi guy sitting in a SUV and he rolled his window down because he realized we were foreigners and he started speaking English to us, really great English. And he told us that, hey, you should go check out this um, valley site. It's called um, Wadi Tayyibism. Uh, and that's what we, we call today, like the springs uh, or the, um, the oasis of Elam. Right. And that's a place we went to that had, you know, the 12 wells and all those, you know, more than 70 palm trees now in that one remote valley. But he yeah. was telling me about it. And he was saying, this is where Moses and the Israelites went through. You have to go check it out. And he was all excited. This, you know, <laughs> So they're not anti-Moses or all that. And they wanted us to go see this site. But again, if they, um, you'll find people who believe that uh, if the site's going to turn into a, a you know, cult center or someplace mm -hmm. like a, a place of worship, and, um, and, and the worship involves idolatry, then they don't want anything to do with it. Fair enough. And I think Christianity is probably, I mean, has probably, we probably deserve some of that because, you know, you see the crosses around people's, around people's necks. You see, you know, in, in, in the Catholic faith, people, you know, paying, you know, homage to different saints and to Mary and to different, you know, different icons. So the idolatry in, you know, religion, even Christianity today, uh, I can see how the Islamic nation could see that we worship idols, or at least some of us do. That, that, that is a real concern that we've probably brought on ourselves. 
Yeah, and um, and and I, I'm always concerned when I when I bring tour groups out there. I get different people on my groups. They're not all uh, one denomination, obviously. Um, they're all Christian usually, but um, you know, I'm always concerned if someone's going to um, uh, do something at a site that I myself would feel uncomfortable with, sure, <laughs> like worshiping something or. Um, and so I, I remember I saw some pictures on Twitter, and um, it was a, a group from another country. They weren't Americans, thankfully, but they were, um, I believe, from South America somewhere. But they were Christians, and they went out to the altar of Moses site. This is this um, L-shaped, you know, boomerang-shaped stone structure that we believe were the animal corrals. And at the very end was uh, where they found ash deposits. Mm -hmm. so we believe this was most likely when Moses built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai as Exodus mm -hmm. um, 24, I think uh, says. And so anyways, they were at the site and on those marble um, the columns and marble blocks that you find scattered around this altar site, um, they had done a whole communion service. Oh boy. And they had posted these photos on Twitter. And so some of the locals were, um, you know, they saw that and they were tweeting things about it that weren't that probably wasn't a great place to do a communion service and then put it all over the internet. You know, you just, you know, you, you, you want to be harmless as a dove and, you know, why is the serpent, as they say. So um, I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with doing a communion service anywhere in the world, but, you know, I'm also respectful. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't want to um, and obviously say we're, we're trying to turn this into a church because mm -hmm. we're not, at least I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, man, we didn't even get to talk about everything that we saw. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, the, the pillars of marble that just show up uh, there at the base of Jebel oh, yeah. Laws and, uh, you know, some incredible things that we don't even have time to talk about today. We're already up on an hour. Um, just just a couple closing thoughts before we let you go. Um, if people are interested in, in maybe seeing some of the pictures of these things that you mentioned, I think you talked about drone footage, and maybe they're interested in, in going on a, on a tour guided trip with you, where do they go to find information about this stuff? How do, how do they contact you? Uh, the easiest way, if you um, just want to go to your browser and type in Discovered Sinai, so that's past tense, DiscoveredSinai.com. And from there, um, there are links that you can watch the videos. There's information about the tours and there are, there are links to the social media accounts. So you can go to um, like YouTube, which has all the videos. Or you can go to YouTube and just search for Discovered Media and it'll pull up the YouTube channel we run, which has a lot of the drone footage. We're always adding more. Could we have, I think we have over, um, I want to say 10 to 15 terabytes of media from all our trips across the Middle wow. East. And so there's enough content that to always create new, <laughs> new material. And so we're slowly adding more and more to the channel every month. And so, yeah, if they want to come there and watch the videos um, and subscribe to the channel, that'd be awesome. If they want to contact me, there's a contact form on the discoveredsinai.com website um, for the tours or just to reach out to me. And then I can reply with my email address. Perfect. And they can like, you know, talk to me. Yeah, awesome. You know. uh, one more thing before we go, our podcast is is talking about developing, you know, masculinity and how masculinity can be a, a bad word in society today in 2020 and, and all of that. What do you think, and just, just quickly here, what do you think that being there in the Middle East and being immersed in a different culture and stepping out of your comfort zone what do you think that you have learned there that, that has maybe developed you into being a, a better, a better man? Hmm. Good question. Well, I think one thing is being dependent on God. Hmm. Um, when you're doing these things, you realize you cannot depend on your own wisdom, your own efforts. There've been so many doors and miracles have happened over here, not because of something I had pre-planned out. And I'm the type of person that has to have everything planned out like on a Google calendar, on a spreadsheet. And when um, I saw things happen or on our, just our first trip over there where God opened the doors, there's nothing that we had planned, uh, including in Turkey, not just Saudi Arabia. And just seeing how, you know, you, you have to live day by day, let God lead you. And there's nothing of your own strength that God, God is the one who will give you strength. I think that's the very first thing that um, these trips have taught me um, as a man. And I think anyone can learn that too, though, is that you have to be 100% dependent on God. Let him lead you 
and in your decisions and in your activities for that day. And it's a day by day thing because mm -hmm. tomorrow God could have something totally different to show you. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the main things I, I hope people, um, when they hear about, you know, going across the Middle East, it's not just some adventure travel, you know, it's not a, a travel vlog. Um, hopefully they understand that, you know, God is real and these, site, these sites exist um, because, you know, the Bible says this happened and we're finding this, the evidence out there for it because God wants to be involved in your life. And, um, and he, these things happen because of that. Wow. What a great answer. Thank you so much, brother. I mean, you started out from going on a couple of trips over there and, and, uh, and now I, I believe you're one of the first to have their, your, your citizenship, no, not citizenship, visa, uh, like live in visa over there, right? Well, in this area of Turkey that um, I got my residency, um, yeah, they, the locals told me I'm the, the only American um, who got it for that province for um, different reasons, but basically uh, it was exciting to see God open the doors and exciting for us to work with the locals um, to achieve that. And so it's helped with our Noah's Ark project. So that's a another topic I know, but um, <laughs> the search for Noah's Ark. And so that's kind of, uh, but yeah, the God has definitely opened the doors for um, that to happen. So uh, wow. yeah, it's exciting to, to, to be in the area where all these biblical events happen and to be trying to prove the Bible or do this research to uh, that can hopefully benefit others. Awesome. Well, Andrew, maybe we'll talk to you again sometime about your Noah's Ark part of, of your, your, um, your, your passion over there, but thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, again, maybe we'll have it was some a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And yes, it was a pleasure to share and hopefully uh, I can do this again.